Okay, we're continuing our study of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Just a brief review. We've looked at the doctrine of Scripture, uh, what the books of the Scripture are, the nature of them, the necessity of them, how God authenticates His own truth in them. He's the author of Scripture. It's everything that we need to know about God and about the duty God requires of us in Scripture. We saw the doctrine of the Trinity, one true and living God and three persons, co-equal and co-eternal. We looked at the decrees of God, how God in His wisdom freely decreed all things. He's independent of His creature. Um, the doctrine of election and reprobation, we looked at those. God's foreordination of all things, causing them to fall out according to the nature of second causes. We looked at the doctrine of creation that God made all things in the space of six days and all very good from nothing, and that he manifested his wisdom, his power, his goodness, and all these, his eternal attributes by the work of creation. We looked at the doctrine of providence, God upholding all things that he made, directing and disposing them for his own glory. We saw the nature again of secondary causes, how they fall out according to necessity or freely, um, however God has designed. God ordinarily makes use of means, but he can work above means, against means, or without means. And then we saw the leaving of the people of God to manifold temptations for their good, and the leaving of the wicked for their own judgment. Now we're going to pick up in chapter 6 today, and then hopefully get through chapters 6 and 7. First, um, chapter 6, concerning the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof. First paragraph, paragraph 1. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. So primary doctrines in this portion of the confession, one is that the doctrine of providence, which we looked at before, God's ruling over all things, including the evil deeds of men, God illustrates the doctrine of providence in the fall. God permitted the fall, having purposed to order it for his glory. And then also we see here that the fall of man um, used secondary means. God is the primary mean. He had decreed all these things, including the fall. But there were specific things that fell out, Satan and man's sin, those being the two things that God used, the secondary causes to accomplish God's providence. All right, paragraph two, by this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all their parts and faculties of soul and body. So this is what we call the original depravity of man or total depravity of man. Uh, no more communion with God as they had before the fall. So these are the primary doctrines here, the results of Adam's first sin. The first result, fall from original righteousness in communion with God. That's the status man had, originally righteous in himself and in communion with God externally. Those two things were lost. He's deprived of those things. Second result of Adam's first sin is death in sin. He's judicially dead, morally dead, spiritually dead, 
mentally dead, and then physically dead or dying in the process of dying. There were others were inflicted immediately, God preserving the natural life of man with a hope of salvation brought in. And then the third result of Adam's sin is the defilement of flesh and spirit, the whole man. Sometimes the Bible calls this the flesh of man because man is composed of two parts, his flesh and his spirit, and the flesh being the lower part, God denominates man by his lower part rather than his higher. Third paragraph, they being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. Okay, so here the first primary doctrine is that Adam and Eve are the root of all mankind. From one blood, God made all nations of men to dwell on the whole face of the earth. So that's the first primary doctrine. The second is, the guilt of Adam's first sin was imputed to all their ordinarily generated posterity. So there's just like in Christ, we have imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness, justification and sanctification. So in Adam, we have <laughs> imputed sin and imparted sin. And the imputation of sin is along the same lines, according to Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, the imputation of Adam's sin is along the same line as the imputation of righteousness. Those are parallel constructs in the Bible. Christ obeyed, and then we receive his righteousness. Adam disobeyed, therefore we receive his condemnation. So that's the first thing, is the imputed sin. And then the second, or excuse me, third primary doctrine is death and sin and corrupt nature is conveyed. It's passed along through ordinary generation, which is where the man um, begets a child in his own image. That's the uh, conveying of the sinful nature. Christ, not having that conveyance, did not have original sin passed on. And then paragraph four. Um, from this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. So there we see this conveyed corruption is the source of all the evil deeds. So primary doctrine, original corruption consists in four things. To be utterly indisposed to all good is the first thing that is part of this original corruption. The second is the utter disability to all good. So not just indisposed to doing good, but disabled to all that is good. And then third is an utter opposition. So not able and opposed to all that is spiritually good. And then wholly inclined or completely inclined to all evil. And then the second primary doctrine here is that all transgressions of God's law proceed from this original corruption. So this conveyed corruption that produces all these other evil deeds. Okay. Paragraph 5. This corrupt, or excuse me, this corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ, pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. OK, 
Okay, so a couple major doctrines here. One is that original corruption is not entirely done away with, even in those born again. So this is contrary to the sinless perfection ideal where man goes without sin. Um, after coming to some higher plane, he's completely freed from sin. No, that's not the case. Original corruption is not entirely eradicated. And then the second primary doctrine here is that even though this original corruption is pardoned and mortified, yet we may call it sin. In other words, it's a sin to be confessed, it's a sin to be forsaken. Um, just like any other actual sin that we commit, this, this corruption of nature, which constantly manifests itself in specific deeds, is also a sin to be confessed and repented of. Okay, paragraph 6. Every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God, and contrary thereunto death in its own nature, bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Alright, so here we see a couple of things. The original sin that man has conveyed to him by ordinary generation and actual sin. Both of these are transgressions of the law of God. Some people believe that only your voluntary actions are transgressions of the law of God. But the Bible doesn't teach us that. It teaches us that also this corruption of nature is contrary to the law of God. So the flesh is contrary to the law of God. The natural man is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can he be. That's a sinful condition to be in. In itself, it is sinful. So if we think of sin merely as the things that we do, then we say, well, if I control the things that I do, I'm not as bad as I might otherwise be. Well, that's not true, because if you still have this original corruption, you have plenty of matter to confess as far as sin to God, not in that particular way I did this specific thing, but in the general way, yes, you are corrupt in yourself, and that is truly and properly called sin. It's a transgression of God's law not to be what he requires of us, as, as, as well as not doing what he requires us to do. And then the second primary doctrine, God's law is righteous. God's law is righteous. And then third, transgressions of that law are what bring the worthiness of death and all the miseries. So sin brings death, the wages of sin is death, and then all the things that accompany death, spiritual, temporal, and eternal misery, all these are because of transgressions of God's law. All right, any questions? Casey, did you have any questions about uh, chapter 6? Okay, doesn't sound like it. So then chapter 7. Of God's eternal covenant with man. Paragraph 1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Okay, so primary doctrines here. One is that 
reasonable creatures owe God obedience as creator. You might call this the law of nature. God made us, and therefore we owe him obedience. In a lesser way, parents make their children, and therefore children owe obedience to their parents. So whoever the creator of someone is, they owe them obedience. But we as reasonable creatures created by God, we owe him obedience. Second main doctrine or primary doctrine, yet we cannot have any fruition. That's the enjoyment of fruit, fruition, to enjoy the good. We cannot have any fruition of God as our blessedness and reward in that natural way. The law of nature offers no fruition of God as an eternal blessing. It's just constant obedience is what we owe under the natural law. Okay, then third primary doctrine, because we can't have God as our blessedness naturally, therefore God chose to condescend to reward man. Okay, so this is not part of the law of nature. Some people believe that the covenant of works is built into the natural order so that when God created Adam, he was automatically in a covenant. That's not actually in the scripture. God created man with a natural obligation to do every single thing that God said without offering anything to him. But God, if his, of his mercy said, of his condescension said, I will offer man me as their fruition should they keep the terms of this covenant. So God condescended. He didn't have to do this, but he chose to do this to reward man by a voluntary act of condescension on God's part. And this voluntary condescension in the fourth major point is expressed in the way of a covenant. So God entered into a covenant with Adam, a covenant of works. He didn't have to. God could say, do all these works, and I give you nothing at the end of it because all you've done is your duty. But God said, do this and live. I provide you this way. And we see that when God says, you will die if you don't do this, we may reason that, therefore, if he had done what God required, there would be life on the other side. And that's consistent with the way that the law of Moses presents this to us. If you do all these things, you shall live. He that doeth these things shall live in them. That's the terms God gave to Adam. It's a reminder that man is obliged to obey his creator if he wants to be blessed, and that if he does the least infraction, then he's cursed. All right, paragraph two there. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Okay, so this covenant of works is sometimes called the law in Scripture. Sometimes it's just referred to as works. But it's where God says, do this and live. Master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? That's the terms of the covenant of works. You want God as your fruition? Do these works and you will live. Now, God promised life to Adam and his posterity. The doing of the law produces life. Okay, so that's the reward that God promises, righteousness, if you obey. That is legal righteousness. Now, some, uh, the Jews especially, and even the papists and others, they look back at the Old Testament and say, oh, well, that was a covenant of works, where if you did the Mosaic law, you would be justified. But now we as Christians, we do these Christian works, 
and they justify us. So Christian works would be self-denial, baptism, the Lord's table, um, praying to the saints, whatever they put in there. They have all these things they say are good works. And if you do those good works, then you'll be justified. God will declare you righteous at the end if you continue persevering on in good works. So they're rebuilding the covenant of works God made with Adam. But God published that covenant with the very purpose of showing us we can't keep the terms. That was the point. The law was added because of transgression till the promised seed should come through whom we would have righteousness. So God gave additional laws to Israel to remind them you can't be justified by works. He didn't give them the law to say, here's how you can be justified. That would make the law against the promise of God, which it's not. The law prepares us for the coming of Christ like a schoolmaster prepares you for your adult life. Starts you off with the rudimentary principles, punishes and disciplines you when you stray so that when you grow you can be matured. So also the training and discipline of the law was to prepare us for Christ. But in any case, the first covenant, this is the main doctrine, first one, the first covenant God made was a covenant of works. And then the second major doctrine, life was promised to Adam and his posterity in this covenant. God would be the blessedness, the fruition and reward of Adam through this covenant of works if he obeyed on condition of perfect obedience. And then the third major doctrine is that this covenant was conditioned by man's obedience. Now, there are two types of law that God gave here to Adam. One is the natural law written on his heart. No other gods, no images, no false worship, no taking God's name in vain, remember the Sabbath, and then all of the second table of the law. That's the natural law, the moral law. But God also gave a positive law in addition to the specific moral law that we've talked about, the say the Ten Commandments. Uh, there was also this specific act of obedience regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, paragraph three. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. Okay, so the first major doctrine from paragraph 3 is that fallenness, not humanity, makes man incapable of justification by works. This is a very important point. It's not that God made man imperfect, and incapable to fulfill the covenant of works. That's not what the scripture teaches. When it says that if there had been a law by which man would have righteousness, verily righteousness would be by law, then it says, but God hath concluded all men under sin, in Galatians 3. Not under their creaturely limitation. It's the fact that man is a sinner who's fallen in Adam, that makes him unable to keep the terms of the covenant of works. It's not just being human. The second uh, major doctrine, primary doctrine here, is that God's pleasure was to make the covenant of grace. That pleased God to ordain a second covenant. And praise God for his good pleasure in that, because without that we have no hope. And then third... 
uh, life and salvation by Christ are freely offered to sinners in this covenant on specific conditions. And that those conditions are expect, ex, expressed by the words requiring of them. Faith. That's what it says. That's what God requires. Faith in Him that they may be saved. And then the fourth major doctrine here is that the promise of the Spirit is given to those ordained unto life. Now we talked about ordination and election. Now this is where it interplays with this covenant. There is an offer made to sinners of life and salvation. There is a condition of faith so that they may have their interest in Christ. But the only way by which those conditions are fulfilled is through the Spirit of God according to the ordination of God. So God predestinating sinners, calling them by His Spirit, enabling them to believe. That's how that condition is fulfilled. That's how it's a covenant of grace because even the condition to interest sinners in it is fulfilled by God, not by men in their own strength. God's power, not men's. Okay, paragraph four. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. Okay, so first primary doctrine, this covenant of grace is also referred to as a testament due to its unilateral parts. Now, usually we distinguish between the parts of God's covenant that are unilateral, one-sided, and those parts that are two-sided or bilateral. So you have unilateral, one side, bilateral, two sides. The testament theme in scripture shows us which parts are unilateral, which parts are one-sided. And there are a couple things that we refer to here in this paragraph specifically. The death of Jesus Christ, the testator. Okay, That's one of the testamental aspects of God's covenant of grace. The death of Christ. Two is the everlasting inheritance. And then all things bequeathed to the heirs in that testament. So those are the things that we see as one-sided. Now, just a warning here about paragraph 4 is that there are people who believe that they should read the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures in particular, in the light of ancient Near East scholarship. So you have the Hittites, you have the Canaanites, you have the Perizzites, you have the Persians, you have the Edomites, you have the Egyptians, all these ancient Near East cultures and nations, and they'll say, well, we should interpret what the Bible says about covenant in light of what we read about the ancient Hittite treaties. They call them suzerainty treaties or other things like that. Let's read the Bible in light of what men did when they would set up a covenant and they would build these things up and it would be like this two-sided thing. I have my part, you have your part. You do this, I do this, or I'll kill you. You know, this kind of thing. And then they say, let's read the Bible in light of this scholarship from the ancient Near East. 
Well, that actually is completely wrong. You don't read the Bible in light of other things. You read other things in light of the Bible. The Bible is primary. Everything else is secondary. And if you read the Old Testament in light of the idea of death, inheritance, a swearing by a central figure to pass on an inheritance to certain beneficiaries, what do you find? We find that all throughout the Old Testament. You find it with Abraham, you find it with Noah, you find it with Moses, you find it with David. Now you might ask yourself, well, yeah, I could see that with Abraham because it's him and his children, right? But then what about Moses? Isn't that more like do all these works and then God will bless you if you do these works because you have to keep your covenant? The answer is a resounding no. Israel didn't get the land because they deserved it. They got it because God had promised an inheritance to their forefather Abraham. They did not get the land by their own sword or by their own strength or by their own goodness or by their own faith or anything because they were a stiff-necked, rebellious people. It was because God had promised to give them the land and appointed them as the successors to the testament he made with Abraham. That's specifically what God said to Abraham. I'm going to take your seed, make them slaves for 400 years, judge the nation who holds them as slaves, then I'll give them the land in which you now stand. He's talking about the Exodus generation and 40 years later inheriting the land. That's what he's talking about to Abraham when he makes that covenant or testament with him. So the covenant with Moses is actually more of a testament. There's the Ark of the Testament. There's the death of the Lamb that releases them out of their bondage. There's the receiving of an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, typed and shadowed forth with a corruptible land that did fade away. But God is still showing them through things that they could see and observe, those spiritual things that they could not see and could not observe. Such that when the New Testament shows up, the, the authors of the New Testament, through the inspiration of the Spirit, are constantly drawing on Old Testament imagery. The inheritance of the land is like the inheritance of heaven. The redeeming out of Egypt is like the redemption from sin. All, Moses is like Christ. Okay, So you have Joshua, brings you into the inheritance, just like Jesus brings us into the inheritance. So all of the Old Testament symbols from the covenant with Moses are used as building stones for the New Testament and the work of Christ and the spiritual blessings we enjoy. Christ is our Passover, the death of the testator. There's the sprinkling of the blood on the book and on the people by Moses. Just like the New Covenant, we're all inaugurated through the blood of Christ. So all these things are parallels between a testament and the idea of inheritance and bequeathing and appointing of heirs, all these things. That's what the Old Testament is largely about with covenantal features where God requires that you do specific things. It's two-sided because we have to respond in faith and in obedience. And that's the covenantal part. Okay. And then the third primary doctrine here is that we are heirs of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The inheritance really goes to the older brother Christ and all of those united to him receive the inheritance in him. That's why it's a testament. Our Airship is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Paragraph 5. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all four signifying Christ to come, 
which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Okay, so here, primary doctrine number one, the covenant of grace has two administrations, the time of the law and the time of the Gospels. That's the first thing. One covenant, two administrations. Not two covenants differing, but one covenant, two times. And then second, the law administered this covenant of grace by anticipation and prophecy. That's very important. Christ has not yet come, and so everything is anticipating his coming. And it's prophesying of his coming. And there are types of his work for us. Third primary doctrine in paragraph 5. The substance of the covenant of grace in both testaments is the same, though the administrations differ. So it's the same stuff uh, in these two testaments. It's the same exact benefits and blessings, but it's administered in different ways. And then fourth, the Old Testament was sufficient for that time to build up the elect unto salvation. It's not like they weren't saved and they were waiting around for salvation and then they got it finally when Christ arrived. That's not what the, what the scriptures of the New Testament say about the Old Testament saints. They were saved by the grace of God. They were justified by faith alone and Christ alone, just like we are. Paragraph 6. Under the gospel and Christ, the substance was exhibited. The ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Okay, so three primary doctrines here, and then we'll conclude. One, the New Testament is a more simple dispensation, and the summing up of the means of grace are preaching and sacraments, those two. Word and sacraments. So it's a simple dispensation, word and sacraments. Second primary doctrine, the New Testament, marked by simplicity, has more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations. So though the Old Testament was more elaborate, there was a lesser revelation. That's very important. More stuff was laid out to administer the covenant, but less truth was given to them. Not different truth, but less. They had less than what we have. Less fullness. Less evidence of the grace of God. And think of this, for example, if you have the ongoing sacrifice morning and evening, that tells you that the sacrifice was not acceptable, that it was not received, and that it was not sufficient to atone for your sins. So the evidence of the grace of God was lacking. The papists who say that the Lord's table is a sacrifice, are saying the same thing that the Old Testament sacrifice said, that it's not enough. It has to be repeated, repeated, repeated. Why? Because the first one didn't work. So therefore we need more. 
So the fact that they had a sacrifice and we have a sacrament is extremely significant. This due in remembrance is a sacrament. It points back to something that was already accomplished. This due in anticipation, and you have to keep on doing it because each time your sins aren't actually atoned for, that says a whole different thing. Christ was sacrificed once for all at the end of ages to make eternal redemption for sin. The lambs that they sacrificed, though they were more elaborate and more costly, and they had to do them more frequently every morning, every evening, twice on the Sabbath in the morning, twice on the Sabbath in the evening, all those things said, the evidence of your salvation is not as clear as what we have as Christians in the sacrament of the Lord's body and blood, the Lord's table. And then the spiritual efficacy, the power that their means of grace had versus the power of our means of grace are not of a different kind, but of a different degree. Though more simple, more powerful. Those are the means that we have. Preaching and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they have more spiritual efficacy to accomplish spiritual good by the working of the Spirit in the saints than any of the Old Testament rites ever had. And then also that these are for all nations in the New Testament as opposed to the Old for one. Okay, and then the third primary doctrine is that we do not have two substantially different covenants of grace, but one and the same under various dispensations. One Christ, one God, one way of salvation. Peter, at the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, when the question arises about the ceremonies of the law and whether we're justified by doing the ceremonies, he answers unequivocally, that we believe that we shall be justified by faith in Jesus Christ without works, just as they were. And if you look at the context in Acts 15 of Peter's argument, it's about the saints in the Old Testament, the fathers who, could, who had this unbearable yoke put on their shoulders of the ceremonies of the law. He said they could not be justified by these things. They were justified in the same way that we are, through believing in Jesus Christ. So they had the same faith. Abraham rejoiced to see, um, uh, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ said, he rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. What about Moses? Moses forsook the riches of Egypt for the reproach of Christ. The same rock that was there in the wilderness following them around, that's, that is Christ who is there with them. So we have all these things telling us that Christ was present with the people of God in the Old Testament they had the gospel preached to them. They believed in Jesus. Those who were justified were only justified by believing in Christ. And so we see same substance to the Old Testament as to the New. Does that mean that the Jews who lived in the days of Jesus and the apostles believed in the gospel that was revealed in the Old Testament? No, they didn't. They turned the Old Testament into a covenant of works. God published in the Old Testament his law to prove that you could not be justified by works. And they took the law and corrupted it to say that they could. That's how stiff-necked and blinded the people of Israel were, that when they received the publication of a covenant of grace, they turned it into a covenant of works. And if you read the New Testament in light of that, and you realize Paul's actually making what's called an ad hominem argument, okay, you believe that the Old Testament teaches a covenant of works, well, then let me show you what that requires exactly. Personal, perfect, perpetual obedience with a curse attached to the least breach of it. So when you read about the Old Testament as a 
administration of death, or you read about it as God publishing on Mount Sinai, and it's gendering to bondage, and you read all this stuff. What Paul is doing is not saying what it is in itself. He's saying what it is as corrupted by the Jews, not what God intended, but what wicked and evil men took and corrupted the scriptures to say, which it never actually said. Okay, Casey, did you have any questions before we conclude? Thank you for asking. No, no questions. All right, let's close our time together in prayer.